My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at at Bethel. And if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 35. That's where we're going to be this morning. We've been looking at this series called The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we come really near the end of the the story of Jacob. Uh, There's little bit left to tell after this morning, but, but by and large, this, this morning comes to the, the end, the literary end, the, these 10 chapters of, of Jacob's life. And it's a good summary, chapter 35 is, um, of who this man is. It reminds me, um, as I was reading through and studying this week, it reminds me of the life of, a, of another man in some ways, um, and that guy's C.S. Lewis. I looked it up and refreshed my memory a little bit about his story. He was born in Belfast, Ireland in 1898, and those that knew him uh, called him Jack. In fact, there's a story that when he was three years old, he came out and announced to his family he didn't want to be called Clive Staples anymore, that they could call him Jack. And so they did, you know, the rest of his life. His earliest memories, he writes, um, sort of an autobiography uh, of, of Lewis is called Surprised by Joy. He tells that his childhood was really very idyllic. He and his brother, they Warren, they, they would play. Um, they, you know, as you read about it, you realize these are kids that had big brains and vivid imaginations. And childhood had endless possibilities. But all that kind of came to an end when Lewis turned nine years old and his, his mother died. And he writes about sort of the loss of his mother this way. He says, the great continent had sunk like Atlantis. There were now only islands of joy in the midst of an unsettled sea. Well, not only did he lose his mom, in many ways he lost his dad. His dad didn't know how to cope with the loss of his wife. He was sent off to boarding school, and the headmaster there was a guy named Oldie who later was certified as insane. So that was Lewis's boarding school experience. At 17 years old, he wrote to his dearest friend at the time, a man named Arthur Greaves. And he wrote this at 17. He says, I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. It would take 15 years until he would write Arthur about the topic of Christianity again, and he wrote this 15 years later to him. Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things, namely the actual incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection. He writes about his conversion this way. You must picture me alone in that room at Magdalene night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work the steady, unrelenting approach of him 
whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. Who can duly adore that love which will open the highest gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. I'm reminded of Jacob, or Lewis. I'm reminded of, of Lewis as I read Jacob that if ever there was a reluctant convert amongst the patriarchs, amongst the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God says, about himself. It would be Jacob. The story, like I said, is an end. There are some things that are going to be, you know, brought to completion, fulfillment. There's a transition to the next generation that happens in this chapter 35. On the other hand, though, you see some things that are left undone. And the next generation is going to be well on its way with its own problems. Think about it this way. This is what I want to try to argue this morning. What God's doing is he continually is calling Jacob into the story that, that God is writing. It's a story that, that for Jacob begins now and stretches out into eternity. And God is, is, is divinely drawing Jacob to a way of life that would sync with the world to come. He, he, he comes, he wants Jacob to, to live a life right now that reflects then. And the invitation is for Jacob to, to live this out. There's this future redemption, this future world, this future hope, these future blessings. And God wants Jacob to live them now. In fact, it's the same call for us. Well, by the time you get here, Jacob's 120 years old. It's best that we can tell. And two things that dominate this chapter, worship and death. Look at me, uh, look with me, chapter uh, 35, I'll begin in verse 1. It says this, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all his people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Let's stop right there for a minute. Jacob, he's overdue this return to Bethel. He has some vows that he had made back in chapter 28, and he had yet to fulfill those vows. And the the background is, is important here in the chapter just before this, chapter 34, which is a very dark chapter. Uh, One of uh, Jacob's children, Dinah, his daughter, she's captured by the Shechemites. They defile her. The brothers go out. They take care of the Shechemites. There's comic relief in the story, but overall the story is very dark. And Jacob, while he's disturbed about what happened to Dinah, he's furious at the sons for what it is that they did. He's worried about the retaliation. So you expect, when you're reading the story, that in the beginning of chapter 35, you expect the story to open up with the Shechemites coming to Jacob, demanding their pound of flesh, if you will, for what had happened in the previous chapter. But that's not what happens. What happens is, instead of the Shechemites showing up, it's God that shows up. And essentially, what God is saying to Jacob is, Jacob, you're not where you're supposed to be. You made a vow back in 28 that when I brought you back into the land, and and I was going to walk with you and care for you, and bless you, and then when you came back to the land, you were going to worship me as your God, but you never came back. You didn't come all the way back. In fact, Shechem is 15 miles short of Bethel. He travels thousands of miles in this journey. And instead of coming all the way back to God, he stops 15 miles short and sets up camp. And so God's reminding him that he's not where he is supposed to be. In fact, C.S. Lewis said it this way, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Jacob was mistaking Shechem for home. Well, not only was it not where he was supposed to be, he was living with a compromise, a half-heartedness that he shouldn't have been living with. Uh, He had one foot in the land, the promised land, and one foot in the world, so to speak. Verse 2 and verse 4 
you see that there are idols in the camp. There's idols in his family, these foreign gods. His whole life is surrounded by foreign gods, probably collected from when they were in Haran with, his, uh, with uh, Laban. Probably they picked some up along the way. Probably they were buying for them and trading them in Shechem. And verse 3 gives us a commentary on them. They're, they're a compromise. Whether Jacob tolerated them or allowed them, they were, they were foreign and they were false. And Jacob tells his family they got to get rid of the foreign gods because they're headed to build an altar to the true God. He's the one. He's the one who had answered him in his day of distress. He's the one who'd been with him wherever he'd gone. He's not a God that needs to be carried around. He's the God who had been carrying Jacob. He's also the God that had protected him and is going to protect him. And it's not because of Jacob's faithful service. It's because of his unconditional faithfulness to Jacob. So in verse 5, there is this terror from God, and it fell on the people that were in proximity to Jacob. The terror was a protection for Jacob. And then in verses 6 and 7, he comes to the place he should have been to worship the God he had come to know and yet had been reluctant to commit his life and his family to. That's the scene that's the setting. I'll make a couple of observations about this and we'll move on. But first, we've come to a scene of corporate worship. It's the first one in Genesis. Jacob and his family and his household, they're having church there at Bethel. That's why, I say it all the time, this church, Bethel Bible, is the most biblical church in all the Bible. It's the place of first corporate worship. They gathered. The, the, the family, the, the promised nation to come, they come around the altar in the house of God, the one true God. Notice, though, I, I want you to notice because we, we get this wrong all the time in our minds. They purified themselves to come to worship. But before they purified themselves, God showed up in his grace. Grace preceded the purity. Instead of leaving Jacob and his family to what they deserved, the retaliation of the Shechemites, God shows up and he calls Jacob by his grace, in his faithfulness, to, to what he needs and what he needs is the presence of God. Now, here is the thing I want you to notice. It was not terror that drove Jacob to God's presence. It was the terror of God that protected Jacob to his presence. Let me explain that. The word terror there, it's the only time that word is used that way in all of the Bible. 
It's a supernatural terror. It, it carries the idea of being demoralized or put to shame or utterly dismayed. It would have been easy for Jacob to feel the shame and the dismay as he took account of his life. He'd been protected by God, lavished blessing upon blessing, protected in times of discouragement and fear, and yet that terror of shame and dismay, that wasn't directed to Jacob. It was directed away from Jacob. Jacob's not led into the presence of God by shame. He's led into the presence of God through grace. Corporate worship, or the worship of God for, for, for that matter, it, it's not coming together and, and wallowing in sin and shame and our half-heartedness. It's coming together in the grace of God because God's revealed himself. Well, we don't come here together to relive our sin. I know some of you, you think, oh, I can't go to church. And it's nothing but shame. I just feel nothing but shame when I go. It's not how it's supposed to be. We come together to remember his grace. We come together to remember who we are in God's eyes. We come together to rehearse what it means that we're God's people, his eternal people with an eternal future that live in a temporary world. And it's not the temporary world that defines us. It's the eternal God who defines who we are. And, and he defines who we are because of his son, Jesus. He calls us his own because of his son. Now look how the where the passage goes from there. In verse 8, we get the strangest verse dropped in, in uh, for, for no out of the, out of the absolute blue. It appears. Verse 8, and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. Here's the deal. You knew Rebecca had a nurse from back in chapter 24, but you didn't know what her name was. It's the only time we've ever heard of Rebecca's nurse. Here she's given a name, and we're told she died. And she's buried under an oak at uh, below Bethel. And so Jacob calls the place, he names it Alan Bakuth. The oak of weeping. In some ways, it marks time. Here's, here's death. It's coming to an end of an age. We'll talk a little more about this in a minute. In verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, which is Haran, where, where he was with Laban, and he married the two sisters. He came from Padan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. It's a reminder of what happened in chapter 32. And then God said to him, I am God Almighty, which is El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from you and your body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. 
and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And so Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Or Bethel. God shows up. He confirms these promises. If there's anything to notice about these verses, it's who is making the promises, and it's not Jacob. It's God. We come to worship together. You spend time alone with God in worship. Prayer, time in his word. The purpose and the design of worship is not about the promises that you make to God about your future. It's remembering and rehearsing and committing yourself to the promises that God has made to you about your future. In verse 9, it's God who appears. It's God who blesses. In verse 10, God reminds Jacob again of who he is and who he isn't. In verse 11, God, God Almighty, El Shaddai, commands Jacob to be blessed, by the way. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a blessing. It's a command to be blessed. And he promises him a future of blessings. And this is a future of blessing that eclipses anything that's going to happen in the next few days or the next few weeks or months or even years. It's a blessing more wonderful, more divine than a single lifetime can enjoy. It's a blessing that endures beyond changing seasons and different addresses, beyond times of plenty and times of want, beyond government policies and elections, beyond times of energy and stamina and times of sickness and declining health. It is future blessing that's not threatened by death and it can't be thwarted by your enemies and it's not forfeited by the seasons of half-heartedness and sin in your life. And because God's blessings, they reach into the future and are fulfilled for an eternity and they are secured by his presence and almighty power, you can trust that everything that comes your way in the temporary is working for your ultimate good in the eternal. See, the reason that people turn to the comfort of foreign gods is for comfort and hope in what is temporary. In essence, it's saying, listen, I don't care about what's to come. I only care about now. It's like gorging yourself on weak old cotton candy from the East Texas Fair, right, set up there in the mall. An hour before the celebration banquet at Prime 102. That's what it's like. And God Almighty, he appears in this moment in time with blessings that are bigger than time itself. And he appears in the midst of Jacob's history and blesses him with promises that are of eternity. 
And the call to Jacob and the call to every one of us, every one of us this morning, is live by faith, live in hope. Conform your lives now to what's good and true forever. Your, your life, it'll either be a reflection of what is right now and temporary, a life that's desperate to control everything around you, to spend your life worrying and anxious and struggling to get what you can today because tomorrow may be worse. In other words, that's a Jacob kind of life. Or your life can be a reflection of eternity to come. Here's the mistake Jacob was making, and I think it's the mistake we make all too often. Jacob is trying to transform God into his own image. J Jacob's desperate for control in his world and in his circumstances. He wants to fit God into his world and his plans and his will. So why Jacob's name? It means cheat or to deceive. In other words, you could translate Jacob's name like this. I want to have things my way no matter the cost. That's what Jacob means. And yet God, he's not interested in that at all. He's more interested in transforming Jacob for his world. He... It's why he changes Jacob's name to Israel. We said last week it means God wins. He built into the name of the idea is, is our striving against God. And when your life is headed towards wanting what you want no matter the cost, striving against God, trying to fit him into your world, make him bend to your will. God says, that's a struggle. That because of my grace... You're not going to win. I'm going to win. It's what it means. We'll, we'll look at verse 16 and, and then we'll consider this. They journeyed on to Bethel. Or they journeyed from Bethel. They got to Bethel. They worshiped. They journeyed from Bethel when they were some distance from um, Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It was the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader, and while Israel lived in the land, Reuben, his son, lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And now the sons of Jacob were 12, and it goes on to list the sons. 
One of the things about life in a fallen and fading world is the real sin and pain and suffering and consequences and regrets that we walk in and out of in life. Sometimes that suffering is the result of the journey that we've chosen to walk, the places we've stayed too long, whether we physically journeyed or relationally or emotionally or internally. It's the places in our lives where our hearts and our wills and our desires have remained rooted to what is fallen, fading, and passing away. Leaves us wanting and unsatisfied and anxious, guilty, ashamed, regretful. And if you could go back and change your course, you would, but you can't. And the great news from this passage, though, and the great news from the rest of the Bible, is you find even in Jacob's life, you can't wander so far from God that he's not there. He comes to Jacob and Haran, he shows up in Shechem when he's alone and on the run, when he's, when he's settled with his found family and surrounded by compromise. No matter where Jacob goes, God pursued him. Every time he invites Jacob to draw near. Jacob, be reminded of who you are. Remember the blessings, rehearse those Jacob cannot get away from God, and neither can you. Another hard thing about life in a fallen and fading world is the real heartache and the real loss and the very real suffering that we endure. Sometimes it comes in the form of burying our idols. You know, the foreign gods we relied on to bring us comfort. Other times it's, it's more painful when we bury our loved ones or our friends. There's these contrasts throughout the chapter. At the beginning of the, of the chapter, there was the, the, the altar of worship in the presence of God side by side. with leaving behind and burying those things that you've relied on so long for comfort and security, even though they're lifeless weight, you wonder if you can really do without them. It's also the contrast of promise and blessing of God, the promises for life, a a future that's guaranteed by God. That's all those things God was talking to. Jacob about. But blessing so wonderful and rich and expansive, one lifetime isn't enough to take it all in. It's to be enjoyed forever, and you contrast that with the death of Deborah, Rebecca's, Rebecca's nurse, and the oak of weeping, which tells us she was someone who was very close and very dear constant figure in his life from birth is what she was. Could be the relationship with his mother, Rebecca, was so strained by all her manipulations and favoritisms and bitterness that 
Deborah was the one who loved him like a mother. More striking, though, here is the side-by-side picture of life and death. The, The intertwining of the story of Rachel and Benjamin. Rachel's death and Benjamin's birth, it reminds us, death is the enemy. And the author, what he does, if you notice, he he slows the account down so that we experience the suffering of death, all of its sorrow, all of its loss. Even the name that Rachel gives her son, the footnote in your Bible helps you with it. It, Ben-Oni literally means son of sorrow. And then there's the description of her soul departing It's ominous. You go back to Genesis chapter 2, 7. It's the same word that's described. What happens when God breathed life into the nostrils of Adam? He became a living creature, a living soul. Life appeared, and here we see it, life departing. And with her last breath, she says, sorrow. Her death highlights the tragedy of her life. The wife, Jacob, Jacob loved, but he struggled because he was never able to, able to give her what she wanted fully. Lewis struggled with this in his life, tells about it and surprised by joy. I think I'm beginning to understand why grief feels like suspense. It it comes from the frustration of so many impulses that have become habitual in my life. Thought after thought and feeling after feeling and action after action had her for their object, his wife, joy. Now the target is gone. I keep on through habit fitting as an arrow to the string, and I remember I have to lay down the bow. So many roads lead to her. And then I set out on one of them. But there's an impasse. So many roads. Now they're all cul-de-sacs. Reminds us. Grief, it's this suspense. There's more to come. We know this isn't right. We know death was never part of the plan. We know death is so wrong for those who were created in the image of God. That's why the disciples, when Jesus dies on the cross, says, this is finished, and breathes his last, they cannot imagine what it is that has just happened. Having come to believe he's the Son of God, how in the world could death claim him? And the reality is, is that Jesus lets death claim him because he's our substitute. He's the one who died for our sin, and then he died. He truly died. He went to death. He went to our death. 
and grief and suspense hang in the air for three days. He rises from the dead, conquers death. Listen, I don't care what you do, what workout you order on late night infomercial. For gym that you join, or, or diet that you, you know, discipline yourself with, or essential oil that you have, none of that is going to, you cannot, you will not defeat death. You cannot. And your hope can never be that you can. Our hope is that Jesus did. Defeated death, was raised from the dead, and what he promises us is that because of him and in him and through him, we also will be raised. So that those that believe in Jesus, death is not the end of your story. Resurrection and eternal life, that awaits you. Well, the 12 sons are accounted for here, but interestingly enough, you have sin and death that are the bookmarks. The sin of Reuben, he, Rachel's gone, he thinks probably his old man's not too far behind, and so he tries to assert himself as the man, take over as the patriarch. And you wonder, what does Jacob think about this? Because we're not even told, we'll be told in Genesis 49 what he thinks about it. And you realize what happens is Reuben, who had all the, so much potential, such a bright future, he throws it all away. Sons are listed, not in their birth order, but according to who their mother is. Instead of having Jacob in common as their father, Moses highlights the Differences that will foreshadow the disunity and struggle and conflict throughout the nation of Israel. And then the text tells us he gets to Hebron, which is where Isaac is, and he gets there just in time because then he dies. And you have the third death in this chapter, the beloved servant, the beloved wife, and the beloved father. the fourth burial, if you count the foreign gods at the beginning. Jacob showed up in the narrative in chapter 25, goes on the run in chapter 28. Over 16 to 1,800 miles in his life, looking for what he could never really find, scheming to get what he could never fully take hold of searching for the one thing that was always just out of his grasp. Sums up his journey. What he came to realize too late is what he was looking for couldn't be found here. It was nowhere that he looked. Nothing he could get. What he was searching for had to come to him. God appeared to him, showed up, called to him. Continues to remind him, I'm almighty, Jacob. I don't know who you are. 
but in my eyes, you're Israel. I know what you were, but that's not who you are any longer. I'm transforming you. I'm fitting you. I'm preparing you for a world to come, for an eternity to come. The real world. Joseph, Jake, I, I want to conform you to a real world kind of life in the midst of a world fading around you. And everything in the chapter focuses in on the promises that God's made. Lewis said this, I'll do what they will then. We remain conscious of a desire which no natural happiness will satisfy. He was dialed into this longing. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such thing as water. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, only to arouse it, to, to suggest something more real. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that God promises in the Gospels and through His Son, Jesus, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Famously, he says, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Moses knew it. He's writing this account, but if you went over to Psalm 90, which is Moses' psalm, he begins it this way, Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. You could also translate it, Lord, you are our eternal home. He's transforming you for his will, his world. that will stretch into eternity. Not your will and not your world that's coming to an end. The sad epitaph of Jacob's life, he never really fully got it until it was too late. His son Joseph's in Egypt. Joseph's the second most powerful man in the world at the time. Jacob had thought he'd lost him, but he's been reunited and shows up, and Joseph wants to introduce his dad to the Pharaoh. So he brings him into the court, brings him into the Pharaoh, brings him before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's honoring this older man, this elder, by asking him questions. And one of the questions he asks him is, how many days in the years of your life? 
many days have you lived, old man? It was a question of respect. Here's what Jacob said about his life of wandering. The days of the years of my sojourning, 130 years, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they not attained to the days of the years of my father's in the days of their sojourning. Tells the Pharaoh, I wasted my life. Looking for what couldn't be found here. And yet the story of Jacob is God showing up over and over and over and over again saying, here, here. Inviting him to come and take hold of it. I don't even need to draw the line, do I? Some of you spending, you've spent your whole life up to this point wandering around looking for really what can't be found here. And you know God's been chasing you. You know God has shown up at every place you thought you got far enough away from him. Maybe it's right here this morning at Bethel. He's saying to you, what you're looking for, I have. And it's forever. And he bids you to come to him. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, there are some here that need to come to you for the very first time. Maybe they're watching online. Maybe there's somebody here this morning watching online. They don't even know how they got here online. But, Father, the truth is you're meeting them right here, right now. Saying, I know who you are, but I know what you're looking for. But who you are isn't working, and what you're looking for can't be found. And Father, this morning, by faith, they would believe God for who he is and what he's done through his son Jesus in making the way for us to enjoy you forever, beginning now. Father, for others, they're they know who you are, and they've, they've walked in faith for some time in their life, and yet, Father, they've been recaptured all over again by the world, it feels like, this morning. And so, would you, by your grace, remind them, call them back to worship, call them back to remembering who they are, in you. Father, not, not through terror and shame, but Father, by your grace. For all of us, help us to see more clearly and beautifully the majesty and grace of your Son, Jesus. Draw us to him. That's how we pray this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus, 
and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.